Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. I am so excited to open this season with an episode about the backbone of every topic this podcast will cover, Responsible Tech. Though Responsible Tech is a niche field of tech, it's also a growing movement that aims to reduce the harms of technology and promotes diversity in its space. It's a collective movement that increases the participation of people from a variety of backgrounds to actively get involved in the creation and distribution of new technologies, as diversity leads to better innovation and creates better outcomes for everyone. To discuss this topic and much more, I invited David Polgar, the founder of the most popular responsible tech out there, and also my favorite tech space, so I might be biased, but, but not really. David is a pioneering tech ethicist, responsible tech advocate, and expert on ways to improve social media and our information ecosystem, along with increasing the ethical considerations surrounding emerging technologies. He is the founder and president of Altec is Human, a nonprofit that brings together people, organizations, and ideas to tackle wicked tech and society issues and co-create a tech future aligned with the public interest. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, David. Welcome to the show. Thrilled to be here. I appreciate you inviting me on it. It's been a minute. How are you? I'm doing all right. Uh, you know, just rocking and rolling. It's uh, never never a quiet day in the world of responsible tech because there's 101 issues and thousands of people who, uh, you know, have great ideas and want to get involved. So, yeah. yeah, never never a quiet day on my end, which is a good thing. I believe that. So what's your story? Yeah, what what is my story? Well, let's let's unpack that a little bit. I uh, really, when I think about my story as it relates to this conversation uh, and the responsible tech movement, and then also starting and r- running uh, the nonprofit All Tech is Human. Uh, my story is uh, I have a background as an attorney and educator, but got heavily involved in the space related to tech. You know, this tech adjacent type of space, which I think is growing uh, and it's important to underline, right? Because uh, tech is not just for technologists, it's for everyone, right? The artists, the designers, the attorneys, the uh, the educators, everyone in, in between. We kind of need every, everyone involved, all different disciplines, backgrounds, uh, lived experiences. Uh, but my own story is uh, probably about 2012 is when I really got heavily kind of involved in the space of uh, tech ethics and thinking about how technology was impacting us from an ethical, legal, emotional, sociological perspective, right? Uh, it was massively different at that time. Even though responsible tech or discussions around responsible AI, trust and safety, tech and democracy, while, while those are becoming relatively mainstream, it still even has a ways to go, uh, it certainly wasn't back when I was starting out in 2012. So I was kind of always a, uh, you know, odd man out, so to speak, of, of doing something a little different than uh, most of the conversations at the time. So I just started doing a lot of writing and, and speaking uh, about some of these issues, and those would always lead to additional opportunities. So for example, uh, in uh, 2012, I did a, a TEDx, uh, which then, uh, brought it forth a couple opportunities. I think got picked up on a TV station in Australia and, and a few other things. And then people would just start reaching out to say, wow, you know, there, there needs to be more discussion around this. There always was in the academic kind of setting. You had people like Sherry Turkle 
uh, at MIT who's who's been thinking about the impacts of social media, or sorry, uh, technology, and then later on uh, social media for dozens of years, right? Since the since the '90s, uh, so you always had that academic layer, but I think uh, what I was seeing at that time in 2012 was a, a real need for these kind of in-between characters who could be translators and bridge builders across civil society, government, industry, academia. And it was just really funny at the time because there wasn't actually that space to talk about like tech ethics. Uh, so that's where the phrase uh, tech ethicist uh, kind of came from originally uh, as it was getting kind of attached to some of my my work. And then that kind of spawned off uh, for many others, right? Because you oftentimes lack descriptors of what a person does and what a field even is. And I think that's the part that oftentimes gets missed in this conversation. For example, I remember talking to data scientists who said, hey, I was a data scientist before that was a thing, before that was even a term, right? Uh, likewise, you talk to people who were in responsible AI before responsible AI or AI safety or uh, AI ethics was a thing. You talk to people who are trust and safety professionals who say, I was in trust and safety for that was even a term. So my own personal story is I I was in relatively early for this larger kind of responsible tech movement. And I always just saw a massive need for not only the translators uh, that I talked about and bridge builders, but also also people who could be field builders, right? Or community builders. That's a very, uh, I don't know, <laughs> I'm biased, but but uh, it's, it's, a, it's an area that is incredibly important, yet oftentimes overlooked in terms of just how important it is. Uh, so one of the things that I always kind of have seen is the importance for environments where people can come together, share ideas, can talk about issues, one of the things that has always frustrated me about this space at large is that the term tech, it looms so large that oftentimes you have people who unfortunately self-select outside of the system who think, hey, I have a background in psychology. Uh, do I belong thinking about social media? And you say, well, wait a minute. It's got social right in its name. You need, you need psychologists and philosophers and game theorists. You, you need... You need disciplines that deeply understand and appreciate human behavior. And I think one of the fatal flaws uh, with the rise of, uh, of the emerging technology that we're often talking about is that we have failed to appreciate, in, in my opinion, the need for kind of holistic understanding and uh, the diversity of thought and diversity of the types of people who are involved in the conversation. Uh, and I think my life's work, what I'm always trying to do is to say, we're missing people who should be sitting at that proverbial table, who have an important voice to add. But the problem is they don't know how to add their voice. You know, we don't want to just be people shaking our tiny fists in the air because problems, frankly, are, are uh, you know, abundant and sometimes easy to point out. The actual tough work is in appreciating what my values are versus your values, what the best practices are, what what are the opportunities for collaboration, and what does any level of consensus look like? 
that was a big aha moment for me early on was that the world doesn't just need problem solvers. It needs problem finders. And I always like to kind of point that out is that you can't solve a problem if you can't see a problem. And that's a that's something that I, I think about a lot, right? Is that I have my own experience. You know, I'm a guy sitting here talking to you in Manhattan, right? So that gives me a certain kind of worldview. Therefore, I am humble or I, I aim to be humble in the fact that I'm one person and an individual is never, no matter how much they read, I'm never going to know it all. And nor should I ever be in a capacity where you would say, okay, well, here's this one person making a key decision that affects millions to billions of lives, right? So a lot of the work that I do and, and just kind of my own North Star is that uh, we need to move away in Western society or speaking as an American, we need to move away from hyper-individualism that I think can be problematic when we try to apply it in uh, a techno-solution uh, type, of, type of capacity, right? Because when we have these tech and society issues, we tend to look towards a few key players. We say, well, what would Elon Musk do? What would Mark Zuckerberg do? We don't you know them. We don't want to know. Well, <laughs> and also, at what point do we, do we also mention that having one person with that amount of concentrated power means that the best case scenario is what you would call like a benevolent dictatorship problem where you hope and pray that the person with the power does the right thing. And if they do the right thing, then you're then then all is good. But if they don't do the right thing, then you're then you're kind of screwed. And that's not a you know something that aligns with how we think of democracy, how we think of participation. You know, something I've always noticed in my own life, uh, and how it relates to all human, is that people are incredibly passionate about these these topics. Yeah. And what do you think brings people to responsible tech and all tech is human? We, we have our values right in our name. So all tech is human. It's a move away from that techno solutionism and it's underlining the value of human agency. And it's also trying to move us away from this mystical nature, especially when we're talking about AI. AI is not magical. It doesn't hallucinate. It's not a person. It's created by us, therefore it's always at some capacity uh, subservient to our human will that we collectively determine and then design and then employ. And I think that's a key part is that I, I've definitely noticed in life you have key differences of philosophy of how people approach this issue. I'm in the team human camp, right? And that's why we've had uh, Douglas Rushkoff who wrote the book, Team Human, and has this podcast, Team Human. Uh, he always talks about finding the others, which is in that book, which is something I've taken to heart, which is why we have mixers where you can find the others, where we have a Slack community of 7,000 people across 85 countries. So you can find other people who care like you. It doesn't matter if they look like you or sound like you or the same age or have different backgrounds. That's the point is that we, we need to mix backgrounds and perspectives together 
And that a mistake we oftentimes make is we assume that it's a certain segment of the population when in fact everyone is involved in tech right now and tech is intertwined with the future of democracy. So that means that if you're not involved in tech <laughs> at this point, you're not involved in the uh, civic participation needed for a well-functioning, uh, vibrant and thriving in the future democracy, right? So that's an important part. But the caveat to that is that people are really struggling with how they actually get involved. They feel oftentimes powerless. So that's where I've always viewed technology as one and the same with uh, democratic participation. But I really, I really don't view this as a typical business consumer relationship. And, and frankly, I think that's one of the reasons why we're struggling with how we regulate uh, emerging technology or specifically with something like social media. Because on one hand, it's legally defined as a business. And when we think about a business, we think of having other options and being able to say, oh, all right, I don't like this taco stand. I'm going to go to somebody else. But now when you have, you know, companies where you're effectively uh, not going to not use them, when you think about a situation like Google, uh, you're in a different precarious position. And that's why people frame it more like a utility. And utilities have a lot more regulation because uh, as an individual, you're more vulnerable to something that you don't have a um, kind of financial choice. Uh, you can't really uh, you know, speak with your wallet when you have to use a service. Therefore, you, you tend to have more regulation around it given that, that vulnerability. Uh, but anyhow, to, to kind of wrap up that, that line of thinking, everything in my background really kind of, I think, led me to where I'm at right now with All Tech is Human is that I've always liked to bring people together I've always liked to be curious, and at the end of the day, I like people, and I and I mention that because not everybody does. And uh, <laughs> one of the things I'm definitely noticing at Altec is Human is that you have a lot of individuals who are really hungry for face-to-face -face communication, who are really hungry for connection, and I view all these these movements as intersecting with one another, right? So the crisis of connection and the rise of uh, mental health concerns, it's directly related to why Altec is Human is able to bring together thousands of people on a relatively small budget as a, as a small nonprofit. So from there, how did you manage to build Altec is Human? I got to tell you, I remember one of the first... Uh, you know, sometimes running a nonprofit can be a little heartbreaking, right? You got to go through a lot of like trials and tribulations to try to uh, grow it, to try to get funders to support it, to try to show why you're you're worthwhile. And I remember, uh, you know, our flagship resource right now is our responsible tech guide. It's really interesting because uh, one of the things that I think most people don't recognize. Uh, you know, is is the people running a nonprofit? They're they're trying to always kind of believe in a mission and then make that mission work. But what you always run into is that you have to also make that palatable for key decision makers that provide the lifeblood of your nonprofit. 
So I remember, uh, you know, in, in 2020, talking to a potential funder to say, here's why we need a responsible tech guide. And, uh, you know, I put it together and said, here's, here's why this is important. People don't know all the different organizations in the space. They don't know who's who. They don't know what this field even looks like or where it's headed. There's not enough connectivity. And, you know, I pitched it over to a funder to say, this is why it's important. It wouldn't really cost that much money. We could put it together. And, you know, that funder, uh, you know, turned it down by saying, well, David, you know, I don't think there's, there's a point for this. Who's this, who's this for? <laughs> I, I got to say, uh, in that scenario, I was right and they were wrong. And I point that out because oftentimes in life, you have to decide, do I listen to advice or do I ignore advice, right? Is that person smarter than me, wiser than me, or are they missing something? Because sometimes you're totally wrong as a person, right? And you have to take good advice. So it's always been uh, an interesting decision deciding, okay, am I, am I out to lunch here on this, this idea or are they missing something? And the reason why I stuck to my uh, kind of North Star of saying, no, I think you're missing something here and push forward, right? I ended up launching the Responsible Tech Guide on a $0 budget when I stayed up for 36 straight hours during COVID, right? A lot of stress during COVID and a lot of, uh, you know, political stress going on in the United States. People were probably not 100% mentally okay, to be quite candid. And I remember thinking, well, then I, I guess I just have to do it. You just have to put it out there. Uh, so so I, I didn't leave my computer outside of uh, bathroom breaks until I got it done and, and just leaned on the assistance of dozens of volunteers across the globe who wanted to help out. And, you know, learn Canva for the first time and we put it out and like, like I said, on a $0 budget and that guide in itself has led to thousands and thousands of downloads and dozens of new people entering the space who would not have been in the space, but for understanding what it even looks like. I remember talking to Chanel, uh, who's trust and safety at Zoom for an event that we're doing last August at the Australian embassy in Washington, DC. And I said, all right, well, how did you get into this area of trust and safety? And uh, I didn't know it. I didn't know her, her story, but she, she said, well, David, I, I didn't actually even know that trust and safety was a profession, but somebody in the space recommended All Tech is Human and the Resultant Tech Guide. And I checked it out and I saw people who were going through issues I thought were important. I read about their background and then I looked into the field and now she's doing extremely well in it, right? So that's something that I think is really, really key. There is a, um, there's a phrase to an earthworm and horseradish, the world is horseradish. And I always think about that, right? And, but it's the idea that you only know the world that you experience. Therefore, to that funder who turned down the responsible tech guide, they don't see the problem it's solving because they don't actually interact with the people who would benefit from the solution. And that really has dramatically affected how I go about uh, running All Tech is Human.
or thinking about Alticus human, you have to know that you don't know everything. And you also have to know that people are on different kind of wavelengths in life. And one of the really kind of unique experiences that, that I've had is that I straddle b- both worlds, right? So I was talking about, you know, doing a bunch of writing and speaking about these issues early on in 2012. Well, what happened is, you know, I had different paths that I could take. So the one that was quite clear early on is that I could have done the traditional, you know, speaking agent, two book deal, tour around the world, which is frankly a good life. It's a lot of fun. I like speaking. I like going and talking to different people and then visiting cities I never thought about. You know, it's taken me to cool places that I wouldn't have been, like Gdansk, Poland, or, or uh, Brasova, Slovakia, or Riga, Latvia. And those are really amazing experiences. But when I'm doing them, I'm also thinking, okay, there's a whole speaker circuit that's going on, right? There's a whole group of people who are spending half their life just traveling the globe, which again is a good life. But I don't think it always intersects with the ground game of what is actually happening and the people who are doing the work. So one of the things that I always think about with Alticus Human is how do we connect the grassroots type of movement with the traditional kind of power structure? So when I get invited to some of these, you know, fancy parties that happen in New York and elsewhere, you start recognizing, you say, okay, this is great. I get amazing food, beautiful location, good wine, but it's not real life, right? It's, it's a very sliver of society that I like to think of are in kind of insulated spaces, right? So you're in these insulated spaces. And one of the problems that I've always noticed and what I try to focus on with Alticus Human is that the insulated spaces are oftentimes usually like your your power structure, right? Because they have access to media, uh, access to policymakers, and they have money to fund nonprofits and initiatives and campaigns. So what we try to do at Alltech is Human is to say, the best ideas actually happen from the grassroots. So how do you get those ideas? But then how do you marry them with the traditional power structure to affect that power structure from the inside? and to alter it by influencing journalists and influencing trust and safety teams at major tech companies and influencing governments, right? We've had a lot of governments reach out our way recently. That's the kind of what we call grassroots power model, because if you only stay within the insulated spaces, then you're going to be diverse, divorced from reality. You're, you're going to miss the pain points Whereas with Alticus Human, it cuts both ways, right? Is that we surround ourselves with thousands and thousands of people. But the the brutal truth of why most groups don't do that is because it's messy. It's because you have to deal with a lot of issues and headaches. It's a lot easier if you create a homogenous group of head nodding than if you deal with the messiness of disagreement and yeah. community and diversity of thought. I'll leave it at that since that's a very long uh, I have so many questions. I love yes, it. Yes, please. Let's do I, it. Because I, I know I sent you a bunch of questions before, but I literally have 15 new questions that came up from what you just said. Let's how is that it. received? How is that received in the um, homogeneous group who 
is holding power in this space? Yeah. Hmm. I would say that Alltech is human has had to work, again, I'm biased, <laughs> but it's had to work a little harder than most because what we're doing is not something you can always easily quantify, right? So hundreds of new people are entering the ecosystem. They would not have entered the ecosystem if they had not been exposed to our Recental Tech Guide or our job board or our talent pool or our Slack community or attended a summit or attended a mixer. It's hard to capture that. It's hard to capture that uh, that's that value. So if you're a funder or type of person who's always thinking about a clear mathematical equation of an ROI, then it becomes a little a little difficult because a lot of the funding world is still based on how many people attended and what did they do after that that attendance, right? So you're looking to cleanly put everything in terms of uh, in terms of metrics. We had to showcase the wins. We had to showcase uh, that we're too big to ignore, right? So uh, I would say that my strategy, because sometimes it you know confuses people because they'll say, my God, you guys are doing so much. And I say, well, yeah, we are, but we also need to because we don't have a uh, traditional model of, of impact that would allow us to just casually go about our, our, our role. Our meaning of why we're here is to bring people together. So we're going to bring people together and show that we build the, the large community. So to so your point about how it was received, luckily there were a few kind of key groups like uh, Ford Foundation was our first funder in, in June of 2021. And then uh, Velostar of the Patrick J. McGovern Foundation. Now we also get some support from uh, Schmidt Futures and talking to a bunch of other funders currently as well. But outside of the quote-unquote trust-based philanthropy kind of group, it really was a situation where I had to say, okay, well, if you don't get how this works, then I'll just show it, right? So one of the problems early on that I did was I assumed that I had to package up the responsible tech guide and wait a year and try to get somebody to agree with it and then do it. Whereas the reason why I was done is because I just did it for zero dollars. And then people reached out and people wanted to get involved. And then that causes the, the other side to kind of flip, right? So if you create something that is far more impactful than alternatives, at a certain point, it flips over the people who couldn't see the vision in the beginning, right? So one of the things that I've, I've, learned in life is you're going to have like the the people who who like rough drafts and can understand vision and then you have the people who can act once they see something and then you have the people who will just never get it so i've i've had to kind of accept that there's some people and groups and funders that will never get it therefore i'd be wasting my my breath i'd be wasting my time trying to convince somebody who never sees the value in having a diverse range of people involved. I, I think something that has uh, really, you know, been unique about what we're doing is we are oftentimes like busting these these silos, right? We're, <laughs> we're basically bringing in a grassroots movement inside of what you could define sometimes as like elite spaces. 
Because normally what happens is you have to get to a certain point in your career before you're even invited to, let's say, a working group. So I give that example. So I've been invited to a couple of working groups that happened after 10 years of my career where they say, oh, okay, well, you've done X, Y, and Z. Therefore, I'm going to invite you to this thing, or we want you to be on this advisory board, right? But what we've done is we said, okay, but part of the issue is that people need more experience. You want the emerging talent to interact with the established talent because at the end of the day, people need mentorship, people need advice. And if you're that established person, oftentimes you're looking for future employees, right? So it can be mutually symbiotic or, or beneficial. So for our working groups, we've always made them open. So you have somebody from the World Economic Forum in Aspen Institute who is on the same call as, as a freshman college student. And that does not happen. That is very, very rare. But what we've said is you got to have all those sides of the coin. So that's another thing that early on, a lot of potential funders, I would argue, were giving me, uh, you know, potentially not good advice because their thinking was, well, who is your exact audience, right? What's that one segment of, of people? Whereas all tech is human, I guess it's a little bit more ambitious. We've tried to create a scenario where we, we are building the ecosystem and influencing it and understanding it at the same time. Therefore, we need to have the people who are looking for a job and the people who are creating jobs and the people who are hiring for those jobs, right? You need to have the mentors intersect with the people who want to be mentored and you need to put them all in the same room. And that is, again, that, that doesn't normally happen. People normally create scenarios where there's very strict uh, kind of guardrails around who's invited to the table. So I would think of all tech as human as everyone's invited. Yeah. And as you said, we do need everyone to make tech responsible and, and safe for mm -hmm. every user. How do we make it the norm? Yeah, I, I think for making it the norm, because that's what a, a few people have talked about is, well, in the future, you know, do we drop the responsible? Is it just all technology is uh, res responsible? But as we've seen with that, recent hotly discussed, you know, techno optimism letter where they kind of called out people in tech ethics and trust and safety as the quote unquote enemy. It's not, it's not something that is a set it and forget it. It's, it's not that everyone wants the tech industry to be responsible. Quite to the contrary, I think you have a division underneath the surface of saying, is technology inherently beneficial? Therefore, should we just let it rip and then see how it goes? And then, you know, I guess more of like a libertarian type of ethos of it naturally leading to job creation and a better future? Or is it something that about human agency? And I'm that latter camp, right? I'm, I'm more, we have to think about the uh, consequences of it. And I think one of the unfortunate uh, misconceptions is everybody within the space can can have a knee-jerk response sometimes to feel defensive. I remember when I was just getting started and building my career, I, I always had this joke uh, because I was speaking a lot about, you know, 
social media and technology and smartphone use and how it impacts us and our ability to have conversations and communicate with one another and critical thinking. And I always had a joke because every time I was on stage, you know, uh, if I was in a panel or something, the other panelists would always say something similar to, but I'm not a Luddite. And they would, they would talk about how they have the newest iPhone and they say, well, but, but see, I, I, I love technology. Right. And I always, I always kind of thought that was funny because I, I thought about it and I was like, well, who are you afraid of offending technology? Like it was, is technology going to like, you know, uh, smack you upside the head. I always thought it was hilarious because I viewed the issue as, you know what, this is our life. This is our society. These are our, our civil liberties we care about. We make the future we want. End of story. That's it. And that's honestly the way that it happens. And anybody who talks about the inevitability of technology is typically undercut by the fact that they tend to be selling that very technology. In other words, you tend to believe something if you have a financial interest in believing that very thing. So for example, last year, Everybody was telling me that the, that we're going towards the we're going to the metaverse, right? Everybody on LinkedIn, they started switching over their job descriptions to throw, throwing in the metaverse in there. A year before that, they they changed around their job descriptions to say that they were focused on blockchain, and maybe they threw in that they they were thinking about NFTs back when people actually cared about NFTs. But all of those technologies have been at this point complete and utter flops and don't even don't even get started about virtual reality which has been promoted since the 1990s that is correct it's kind of come and gone through a couple of waves it's uh it's at a certain point when are you going to stop trying to make fetch happen and i think what's interesting about that is that it all came back to technology is not magic we don't put devices on our heads, right? Magically, we decide, am I going to purchase this? Does this make this make sense? Do I want to sit in a room uh, with a VR headset? Or would that make me feel unusual? Is that what I want to do right now? Right? So we actually have human decisions that we run by to determine whether technology gets adopted. And a lot of I don't know, uh, people promoting tech products, they, they tend to use a whole line of thinking that technology is inevitable and that it doesn't matter whether you think the metaverse is overhyped or not, that you're going to miss the boat. It's a, it's a classic persuasion tactic of trying to make you feel old and outdated and like, you're just not smart enough, right? So anybody, I remember writing a, I think a 2013 article for courts saying that cryptocurrency is designed as a multi-level marketing scheme, very similar to, you know, a, a pyramid scheme structure. Obviously I got some negative pushback from that, but when you actually think about it, what happens is a lot of people are afraid to say what they believe because people promoting this kind of like, this is the tech future that's going to happen. 
they really lean into trying to make you feel insecure, again, as a persuasion tactic, to say, hey, you just don't understand cryptocurrency. David, you just don't understand the power of this. But then when you point out, you say, well, it's a speculative asset and nobody's going to use it as a currency. And then if it's fluctuating, why would anybody use that? And again, well, you just don't understand. And wouldn't you need it somewhere X, Y, and Z? And who was right and who was wrong, right? The idea that we, within the recental tech movement, I think we really need to have a sense of pride and you know conviction to say, hey, we can believe what we want to believe. We can do what we want to do. We can create the future that is designed in our interest because it's our future. Technology is not just magically moving us forward. It's the laws that we create or don't create, the, the tech that we adopt or don't adopt. Nothing is, being, nothing is pushing us into the future. The future is a consequence of decisions we make or don't make. And that's why it's important to, to really kind of understand uh, our, our need for participation in it. So I would just say like, all tech is human is, yeah, it's all about getting people to, to participate. And you talked about um, human agency. The important, mm -hmm. I mean, we have a say in this and I want to quote you. You said, the irony of the digital age is that it has caused us to reflect on what it is to be human. And I yeah. think it's something that resonated in a lot of us. Can you tell us more about what you meant? Yeah. You remember saying that pretty early on, because I always thought it was fascinating how we kept on using terms about our humanity, while at the same time you had the rise of digitalization. And I thought, well, those two are actually connected because... When you think about your own upbringing, let's talk about my own, right? You know, when you're when you're growing up as a kid, you are are educated and and like taught to to believe that you have free will and that you're unique and that you determine your decisions. And I think one of the struggles for a lot of people is that the rise, right, of emerging technologies, or let's say if we're talking about something like predictive analytics. It, it sometimes pulls into question what it means to be, be human. I, so for example, you saw products years ago, 10 years ago, using some of these, right? So with Pandora, when, when that first got really big, it would say, okay, well, you like this song, therefore you like some other song. And a lot of times they're correct, but then it causes you to kind of question to say, well, wait a minute, am I unique? Was I making that decision or do I fall within some categorization of who I am, right? In other words, if, if technology can determine your next move, then what does that say about your own ability to make that move if you're so predictable? But in a more immediate fashion, now with the rise of generative AI, you have a lot of people who are saying, and I think Gmail is now incorporating it, hey, well, save a lot of time. Don't you want to save time so you can head to the beach? Don't you want to uh, write less emails? Therefore, you know, have some more uh, smart composition of uh, kind of generated text. But then, then you kind of really think, well, wait a minute. If my interactions now are with a derivative of the individual whose name pops up in my inbox, then 
who am I talking to, right? Is the email just about the conveyance of information or is it about building a important relationship with that person? And then what if I replace my own, my own email with, uh, with generated content? Are we going to have a future where the person I'm emailing doesn't want to spend time emailing me back? Therefore, they set up a system and I don't want to spend time and I, I, I'm too busy. And so I set up my own. Therefore, you would, you would have a comical scenario of emails being sent where bots are talking to other bots. And I think that's a, that's a real possibility <laughs> because we're always obviously trying to be uh, efficient or hyper-efficient. But I think it misses the point about why we connect with one another, right? It, it, it's kind of it's like the, the idea that sometimes I'll, I'll get a LinkedIn uh, message you know, to connect. And the person says, well, I see that we're already connected with, uh, with X amount of people. Therefore let's connect. And I, and I always think, wow, that's the most bizarre logic because by that logic, I should be connected with every single person on earth, right? Because mathematically you can only be, uh, I think it's what the 52nd cousin, right? There's only so many, uh, degrees of, of humans, right? As it continues to go up each, each layer. So that was missing the point about, well, why do I want to connect with people? What are we hoping to get out of relationships? And that's really what I mean by the rise of our digital age, uh, coinciding with the, you know, the questions about what it means to be human is because we're constantly now battling up against what makes us unique, what makes relationships important, right? What makes us happy? Uh, and that that's something we have to think about in in our technology of how it impacts us, but also how we design it to to work for us. Yeah. You know, when you say you talk about efficiency, it's it made me think about uh, dating apps, actually, mm -hmm. and how we try to be efficient into literally falling in love, something you can't really, you know, plan or... Exactly, yeah. Yeah. How could we change that, like move towards a design that is more human-centered? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the dating apps is a, is a really good uh, scenario because it tries to create math where there is no math, right? It tries to create reason into something that is not reasonable, right? Because if I ask my, my wife, Leslie, I'd say, hey, well... Describe your your perfect uh, mate, you know, <laughs> and then then match it up. Well, well, the, that probably wouldn't have matched up with me, right? So what's that about? Then you would say, yeah, that's because love is not mathematical. You know, it's if you're talking about things like attraction and magnetism and compatibility, those aren't those aren't check boxes. And also, then it gets into the issue of is somebody defining themselves as they actually are or or as they want to be, right? Their aspirational self. Uh, but it just, it really leans into this idea that we're always looking for shortcuts, right? It's hard to find uh, a great person to spend the rest of your life with. Therefore, wouldn't it be easier if you could just see a hundred options, then you're assuming one out of those hundred will be the right one, right? We're always trying to find that easy way out. And that's why I say like that with the, the, the emailing as well with the generative AI. I think that we have to sometimes recognize that 
it's not always about efficient efficiency, right? So even right now with uh, in-person gatherings during COVID, you know, the popular convention or wisdom was, wow, this is going to be the the death knell for live events. And why did we ever do that? Everything should be virtual, kind of moving forward. But that totally discounts the fact that as humans, most of us want to be in the presence of other humans, that it's not only about the amount of connections we might have or the conveyance of information. It's also about relationships and being in a moment and being in an environment that is uh, joyful or, or interesting, right? I always think my, you know, my personal belief is that we, we dramatically discount how humans make decisions, right? We always, we always think about it in terms of math or, or, or thinking of humans as machines, right? Whereas humans are not always rational. We're not rational decision makers all the time. We're not always efficient. Even think about right now. So the biggest artist in America is, is Taylor Swift. Well, Taylor Swift sells a lot of vinyl records because the, the popular kind of wisdom early on was that we move towards efficiencies, right? So a CD was, was better than a vinyl, or we don't want to get into what an eight track is, but uh, then you got into, you know, MP3s. And you had some compression, but people got over that. And then you got into the release of the iPod and then eventually with the iPhone. And then you said, wait a minute, my God, like one vinyl record or one CD usually had around 12 songs. But in my one pocket, I can hold hundreds of songs. Isn't that more efficient? But that line of thinking also said the same thing about books, dead tree books, which people are still buying. And they say, well, why would we have, why do we go to libraries when you can have a library on a, on a, you know, flash disk? Why would you have a library when all the books can, can be in one, one hand? And what we recognized is that is completely missing why we read, why we go to libraries, Yeah. right? At the end, at the end of the day, you might like to be on a beach and like, might like the smell of paper mm -hmm. because again we're not machines that are about efficiency it's not just a conveyance of information we also might like the pleasure of reading and we might not always like to be so plugged in right we we're, we're still humans at the end of the day who are trying to have a good life and trying to be happy and trying to feel a sense of um, equilibrium and i think that's that's really really kind of important so i've always kind of noticed that is is that we have a tendency to think in terms of efficiencies, but as I mentioned with Taylor Swift and selling final records, it's hilarious, right? Because final record sales have gone up every year since the release of the iPhone. That's really kind of bizarre. But it's also because what is fandom? To be a fan, if, if you're a fan of Taylor Swift, well, how are you going to show you're a fan? If you and I, if you're, if you're a Swiftie and I'm a casual listener, if I can have the exact same songs, because if you were just listening, let's say at the time with, with, you know, Spotify or MP3s before that, then that really kind of annoys you because you're saying, well, 
I care more about her than you do. So how do I actually showcase that? You showcase that through purchases, through ownership, through visuals. So a vinyl record is a piece of art. And then the, the act of listening to a vinyl record is an act of patience and, and actual like, I'm not just going to switch over to the next song. You literally would have to raise your needle. So it makes sense when you actually think about the fact that we're all trying to live a good life. And I will say like, that's, that's always my North star is don't divorce tech decisions from the fact that we're making human decisions day in and day out. I love that you say this because it's true that big tech is so focused on efficiency and the vinyl example is so telling and illustrates that it's not all about efficiency. So do you think we can predict the future of tech? Do you think we could predict what people actually want or is it just based on hypes? Yeah, I think uh, that everyone has some something to sell. So you have to always just take that with a grain of salt. It's very hard to predict the future because if you could predict the future, then you would make a ton of money, right? If, if economists could predict the economic kind of uh, future, they would all be extremely wealthy, but they're not because they can't predict the future. Again, there's a lot of unknowns. Uh, and I think with technology, I'm always amazed by, you know, how much changes, but how much also stays the same. And what I mean by that is, you know, here I am living in Manhattan where we're still getting by on a subway and, and, and talking about expanding it. With technology, the change does not always mean to advance. Sometimes you also think, well, what's the most effective technology in this particular circumstance. So I'll give you an example. All the time I, I travel, right, in a, uh, a vehicle where I can get up, stretch my legs, go to the cafe, right? I'm talking about Amtrak. I'm not talking about self-driving cars. When you look at self-driving cars and autonomous vehicles, They've really struggled recently. There's been a lot of uh, a lot of issues out in the Bay Area of you know self-driving cars getting stuck in cement and uh, accidents that that happened because it's extremely difficult. Like the 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 actual technological capabilities that need to be made in order to safely have autonomous vehicles is actually extremely intense. But when I think about that. I also think of, is the underlying lining question even right? Should we be thinking, how do we perfect an autonomous vehicle? Or should we be thinking, how do we transport more people in a faster manner and in a safer manner and reduce you know, pedestrian accidents and, and, and vehicle kind of accidents as well? is then you might arrive at a different decision. In other words, the obsession over the last 10 years with autonomous vehicles is most likely related to who's leading those conversations and what do they find important. So in other words, 
it wasn't like autonomous vehicles is the technology that we should be focused on. Uh, it's more likely that it's technology that caught the imagination of journalists, which impact the general public and and their understanding of what the future is going to be. And a couple key companies uh, got behind it, right? So it's very hard sometimes to uh, separate hype from what is actually ideal. So personally, I would argue that we've made kind of a folly for investing billions and billions of dollars in autonomous vehicles when we have a you know crumbling infrastructure in the United States. Uh, other countries have far faster high-speed rail. Those are two totally different forms of transportation. But when I'm on Amtrak, that's better for the masses. It's better for more people. It's better for the collective will of the nation that wants to get around the country. When you think about an autonomous vehicle, it's better for that one individual who is saying, wait a minute, maybe there isn't a train stop where I want to go and I want one car to pick up one person to drive me to my chosen location. In other words, it's uh, objectively a relatively selfish kind of technology in terms of you're not going after the larger issues with transportation. You're going after the convenience factor and really just this obsession with how do we perfect something, right? We always have certain technologies that we obsess after, right? People have always been obsessed of creating a hovercraft, for, for example, uh, after they saw Back to the Future 2, right? So you have the same thing. Uh, movies influence where, how we develop our technology. Uh, a lot of technologists were influenced by, I'd say, Star Trek, things like that. Uh, so it's always fascinating of like, what we're attracted to versus what what is actually beneficial. And I don't think those are one and the same. Yeah. Where do you see the future of responsible tech in the next five years? Yeah. Well, I think the future of responsible tech is massively growing uh, through kind of different hubs. So, for example, on our Slack, where we have now, I think I mentioned like 7,000 members across 85 countries, we're always paying attention to see, wait a minute, okay, look, there, there's more activity going on in Amsterdam or look at these key cities throughout India where we're getting activity and people signing up and, hey, well, now we seem to have an uptick in Boston because we have people there who are organizing their own meetups and, oh, okay, people are talking about doing this in Berlin. So you, you start noticing all these different hubs of activity. So where I see this headed over the next five years is... How do we create learnings from all these different communities that are that are bubbling up? So I'm in New York City. We do monthly gatherings for 200 people, and all of those have been kind of packed. So there's a lot of activity in New York with Responsible Tech. So a lot of people are visiting us and saying, well, how do we set this up in our own kind of community? So I see the next five years as a, a more kind of cohesive movement is is needed but also how do we create tools for different community leaders to create their own thing, right? So for example, with college campuses, uh, people are always asking us about, you know, could we do an all human chapter or they have like a responsible tech 
uh, type of club or ethical tech club or something like that? And how could we, how could we kind of get involved and, and partner up? So I think there's a lot of potential right there. Uh, I also think that over the next five years, uh, what we're seeing is that there's no silver bullet. Uh, I always like to say, uh, you know, I always think back to this one meme of uh, Spider-Man who are pointing at each other. And I, and I always view that as kind of indicative of our current moment where we say, well, who's at fault, right? Is it the uh, policymakers for being asleep at the wheel and not being proactive enough? Is it the tech companies for not being responsible enough? Is it the general public for not being uh, informed enough and not participating, uh, not being engaged or empowered? And over the next five years, it goes from who's to blame versus how do we all think of our different roles as as stakeholders? So a lot of people in responsible tech mention mention this as our quote unquote seatbelt moment, right? Which is based on uh, Ralph Nader in the 1960s with his book Unsafe at Any Speed, and just that idea that you know car companies were saying, "Hey, seatbelts would be too expensive." Uh, you know, up the price of a car and do consumers really want this? Obviously, in hindsight, seatbelts make a lot of sense, right? Or, and did make a lot of sense. But when you think about car driving, we naturally combine all the different stakeholder groups, right? So when you get in your car, you check your mirrors, you, 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 you know, make sure that you're driving safely, use your blinkers, right? You, you, you brake when you need to brake. You watch for pedestrians and other hazards. So you've got the personal responsibility. You also have inside your, your, your wallet, you have a license. So you took a test. You got educated. There's a, a governmental mechanism to even you know, understand whether you should be able to drive a car, whether you're a certain age, whether you have the, the proper eyesight, whether you are educated about this issue. So you have this kind of driver's license, and then you have your personal responsibility. But then it intersects with the business because is your car safe enough, right? Does it have seatbelts? Does it have airbags? Uh, do they use crash test dummies? And what's their safety kind of rating? And and then, then it intersects with government because it, it says, well, wait a minute. Are the streets paved? Is there a big pothole? Should you get pulled over if you're driving 85 and a 65, right? So government, business, and uh, individual behavior are all intertwined when we think about driving. And over the next five years, I think more of us are going to recognize just the natural nuance of tech and society, how it's a combination of all of these. It's, it's about all the different actors kind of coming together, adding their value, adding their oversight, and all of them kind of working in tandem to create a uh, a better, you know, safer society. And I, I see the same thing happening with, uh, with everything in, in responsible tech. David, thank you so much for this amazing conversation. It was a pleasure. Thank you.